Jesus, thank you so much for this day, God. Thank you for um, each person that you brought here, God. Thank you for bringing them here safely. I'm in the rain, Lord. God, I pray that you would protect them as they all lead a day, I'll say. Um, God, thank you for just the opportunity to gather together with um, people who love you, God, um, to come and to worship you, to make much of your name, Jesus. Um, God, I pray that from your glorious and unlimited resources today that you'll give us power and strength, God, through your spirit, that you'll make our home in our hearts as we continue to trust you, that 
our roots will grow down into your love for us, God, and that that will be an anchor for our souls, keeping us strong. God, give us the power to understand how wide, how long, how high, and how deep your love is. Help us to experience the love of Christ Jesus, though we know it's too great to fully understand. Um, God, I pray that you would make each person here um, complete with all the fullness of your life and the power that we know only comes from you. In your name we pray, amen. All right, so today we are in the middle of our Unspoken Sins of the Church series, and today's topic is addiction. Um, This isn't something that we don't necessarily talk about in the church. If I were to ask you all um, if you had been directly impacted by addiction, you, your family, somebody close to you, probably most of you would raise your hand, and um, even statistically more than half of you would, myself included. Uh, And so... If today had to be wrapped up into just a couple of sentences, this message, it would be these things. Um, Number one, what are you looking for? Number two, where are you looking for it? And number three, that Jesus is more, abundantly more. We know that part of the human experience is um, searching for purpose, right? Like we're always looking um, to make sense of life and the world that we live in, um, searching to fill a void and an emptiness that we can fill inside, Uh, And those basic needs don't change from person to person. They're the same. But what we fill that emptiness with is what differs sometimes, right? Um, Not always, but usually people who struggle with addiction are trying to fill a void, even if it's just the void of wanting to be entertained. They're just bored, okay? That's a a need also is entertainment. Um, And so today, while we are looking and talking about addiction in part, I believe that's true for sin in general, that any time we um, do something that causes separation between Christ and ourselves, it's because we're trying to fill um, some void, something uh, empty inside of ourselves. And so, again, um, we're going to talk about addiction, but also sin and how it impacts believers collectively as a whole. So, again, what are you looking for? Where are you looking for it? Jesus is more. Maybe today you're looking for happiness and joy Um, you know, true joy, true happiness, contentment, security, entertainment. Again, you know, people who are addicts addicts don't always do something because they have a deep-seated issue. Sometimes it's just because they enjoy what they're doing. Um, Maybe you're looking for escape or stress relief. Maybe you're searching for status and, you know, wanting to feel important um, or love and attention. Maybe you are looking for your identity. You're searching for who you are rest, maybe you're just tired, Um, acceptance, belonging, purpose, you know, to make sense of and for everything that you've gone through to to have a purpose and to make sense. Um, Maybe you're searching for control, healing, peace, safety. Maybe you've, you know, been the only person your entire life to take care of you and you just want somebody to take care of you for once instead of yourself. Comfort, freedom, the list could go on and on and on and again will be different from each person in this room. Um, And while some of our needs and wants would overlap, you know what it is that you're looking for today and where you're looking for it. Um, Those things are not wrong or sinful, okay? I would say that God even made us with those specific needs. But where you're looking for them is when it can become sin, and that's what we're going to talk about today. Where are you looking to be filled? What's so interesting and compelling to me about the Bible is that those exact same wants and needs have been the same since the beginning of time, and they haven't changed at all. James even touched on this a little bit last week when he talked about how, you know, the Bible and its relevance for us still today, outside of the fact that we believe that it's literally God's word, like his, his actual words to us on the pages, 
um, we can learn from those people that are in there, those stories. They were real people living um, through real real life circumstances, you know, doing real people stuff. They weren't just um, fictional characters, you know, that we read about when we read the Bible. And so one thing the Bible does is give us a roadmap. We know that for life in general, but when we're talking about addiction and sin, um, it especially can show us people who did a great job of looking to have that long list of needs met in Jesus and people who sometimes didn't choose to find those needs um, and those things met in Jesus. And so Today, when we read, we're going to read about um, two guys in the Bible who, who did this very thing. Two guys who love the Lord, too, who sometimes look to have those needs met outside of Jesus. <clears throat> and so the first thing we're going to read is Ephesians three sixteen through 19. And that's going to serve kind of as the foundation for how we're going to talk about addiction and, again, sin in general. And this is what it says. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. Not just, you know, a physical strength. He's saying the inside, that part of you that, again, is deep and that only you and Jesus see often. That's where he wants to develop strength and power. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide And long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. The reason that this today is going to be key in what we talk about and foundational is because it touches on three things, and that is who we are in Jesus, whose we are, and then what God has and desires to give to you and I as those who place faith and trust in him, what he wants to give his holy people. When he wrote this letter to um, the Ephesians and he gets down to these verses, he writes about something that all Christians should desire. Again, if you know who Jesus is today, if you've placed your faith and hope and trust in him, um, that desire, he says, is wanting to be filled with the fullness of God rather than the emptiness that the world has to offer us. Paul shows us in this, you know, little tiny passage, these couple of verses that what God has to offer to you and to me through Jesus surpasses anything else that we could ever try to chase after and to fill ourselves with um, when it comes to meeting, again, that list of needs. I want to tell you today, too, what the world offers to us, and you know this. Lots of us um, have lived life. You've done things well. You've made mistakes. You've learned from them. The world is always going to offer you a counterfeit version of what God has for you, okay? So it's going to be a version that's going to leave you hungrier when you come to it. It's going to be a cheaper version of what God wants to give to you and fill you with, the version that breaks easier and is more fragile. Um, It's going to be a version that's going to fill you maybe in part for a little bit, but it's always going to leave you hungrier and sick when you leave it, not satisfied um, and not full, which again is what God wants for you. He's what he wants for all of his children. So what does it mean when we talk about the fullness of God? What do I mean? What did Paul mean when he said, I pray that you are filled, that you're full with who God is. When he describes the fullness of God, this is the words that he uses. Um, He talks about glorious riches. He talks about Jesus's dwelling presence, being rooted and established in love, that love and knowing how wide and long and high and deep it is. And again, that knowledge and fullness of who God is, that completeness. Um, The fullness of God, and again, what we find in Jesus is never lacking. We're always promised great riches and glory, promises that are never unfulfilled or abandoned, like he's never going to let us down. What he says he does or what he says he's going to do, he'll do. 
um, an everlasting love that's rooted in the believer. His fullness doesn't have limits or parameters. It's boundless, meaning that when you come to him and you ask to be filled, there's no, there's no stopping point. He's going to pour and pour and pour until you, until you walk away and say you don't want to be filled anymore. Um, he'll keep pouring it out on you. Uh, and it's unimaginably satisfying. Paul even goes on to say that what God offers to us through his son Jesus is so insanely wonderful that it literally surpasses what we're able to comprehend as humans um, because there's no category and there's no words to accurately describe the goodness that he has for you and he has for me and the ways that he wants to satisfy us and truly fill us. Again, who Jesus is is never defined as empty. You won't go and um, come to Jesus and you know, walk away lacking. It's always described as completeness and fullness. So what does all that have to do with addiction? And how do, we, um, how do we transition into that conversation and part of this message? So again, addiction isn't really something that we don't talk about in the church. We know that you know, oftentimes it's addressed, but it's usually those really you know, aggressive, um, very in-your-face addictions, right? So things that are very obvious, like um, an addiction to alcohol or pornography, gambling, um, you know, drugs, things like that, things that nobody in here would argue today and be like, yeah, those are, those are great things. I think that's where Jesus wants me to go and be filled is in those things. Now, we know that those things are wrong and that they're damaging. So what is it then that we don't talk about that we might struggle with inside the church? Those things that might be addictions or could just be simple sins that um, sadly can lead to addictions sometimes. So how many of you have ever felt your phone vibrate in your back pocket and you go back to reach because you think somebody's calling or texting you and you're like patting your pocket and your phone isn't there? Anybody ever felt the phantom vibration or heard the phantom ring? Brandon, my husband, who literally is like an 80-year-old man and doesn't, he hates cell phones, did this like a couple days ago. He was like, Haley, is your phone vibrating? And I said, no. And he, he was like, are you sure? It's like, yeah, it's right there. It's not, nothing's happening. And he, a guy, again, who doesn't struggle with cell phones because he hates them, thought that he heard my phone ringing. How many of you have felt panic rush over you because you think you lost your phone? And you're like running around and you're like, oh my word, where is it? I've got to find it. You know, I need, I need this. Well, why do I mention that and ask you those questions? You guessed it. The first thing we're going to talk about is a potential addiction to cell phones, to smartphones and um, things like that. So Harvard actually did a study in 2018 and found that most U.S. adults spend about 18 18 hours. Well, not 18 hours. That would be an actual addiction. Um, They spend about four hours, excuse me, on their phone each day. Um, But that's not counting your, you know, television or um, if maybe if you work on your computer a lot, that's literally just your cell phone. Uh, And again, I would say probably post-pandemic, We spend a lot more time on there, probably, than even that now. Uh, And again, to mention Brandon, he used to teach at the high school, and he would have his kids do this, like get their phones out and check their usage and, um, you know, see how much time they spent and where they were spending it. And he had a kid one time who's average, okay, so it was taking like the highest days and shortest days, of course, who spent 12 hours on his phone and Brandon, like, gave him the hardest time. And he was like, when did you, when did you sleep? What did, did, were you on it at school? Because you're at school eight hours. Hopefully you're sleeping at least eight hours. When did you, like, eat and do all these things on your phone for 12 hours? Um, you can do this, too. So y'all, not now, but when you go home, you should check it and kind of guess if you think you're over the average at four or under the average. 
I'm going to see if you win, see if you beat the odds and you are below or above the average. Um, and while there's nothing inherently addictive about a phone, right, when you see a phone, you're not automatically addicted to it, uh, what makes them addictive are those needs that we have that we have met through the phone, right? So it's this idea of being super connected to one another and not ever not being in the know and not missing something, um, you know, that somebody's posting or even how good it feels when somebody likes your stuff or, you know, interacts with it. That is what becomes addictive. It's those needs. Um, and we're going to talk a, a, in a second about how that it actually has a lot more to do with your brain um, and your neural circuitry too. But before we do that, I want to show you guys a quick video um, that is very picturesque of maybe some ladies that struggle with addiction to their phones. Bottom four at Chase Field, D-Baxter and the Rockies one nothing. And while there, maybe they'll tweet us their fan photo. Now's the time, fans. Uh, get on the uh, Twitter with a hashtag of the whole thing, AZ Data Strong Fan. Then you might see your fan photo at a Diamondback TV broadcast brought to you by T-Mobile. <laughs> I mean, look, look at the one on the right. Do you have to make faces when you take selfies? Wait, one more now. Better angle. Well, check it. Did that come out okay? That's the best one of the 300 pictures I've taken like, of myself like, today. Every girl in the picture is locked into her phone. Oh, every single one is dialed in. Welcome to parenting in 2015. <laughs> They're all just completely transfixed by the technology. David Peralta. <laughs> oh, hold on. I had to take a selfie with the hot dog. Selfie with the churro. Selfie just of a selfie. I can't even get my phone to take pictures. <laughs> <laughs> Took a picture of your thumb last week. That was good. <laughs> Here's my first bite of the churro. Here's my second bite of the churro. You know, the beauty of baseball is you can sit next to your neighbor and have a conversation, or you can just completely ignore them. Peralta. Knocks it into center, David, tonight, two for two, a leadoff single here in the fourth. And nobody noticed. <laughs> help us, please, somebody help us. Yeah, we need to, can we do an intervention? How about if we send Baxter out there and he just collects all the phones? <laughs> You're not getting them back to the end of the game. You might have an addiction to your phone <laughs> if you spend more time trying to capture moments than actually being in the moment. And I think sometimes this can be hard for us mamas because we want to like snap all the photos of our kids and our you know, families playing. And uh, maybe you've experienced this also where your kid is like, mom, I don't want to stop what I'm doing, like quit. Nora, our little girl who's two actually did this over the fourth, the weekend that we celebrated the fourth. Her aunt was trying to like snap photos over and she said, no pictures, no pictures. She was done because she wanted to play and she wanted, you know, all of us to play with her, not just try to snap pictures and again, miss out on the moment and what was ha actually happening in front of us. Um, there's no doubt immense benefit that comes from cell phones. We know this. They connect us. They give us incredible abilities to stay in touch with each other, um, to know things. Again, they are not wrong or addictive in and of themselves, 
but why, why do you go to it? What are you looking for? Are you mindlessly scrolling, again, just trying to escape maybe or de-stress? That's one of the things I struggle with. I just want to sit down and just do something mindless, not have to think about anything except just scroll and consume, you know, whatever I'm looking at. Um, we know, too, this is not something that is going to be new information probably to any of you, but now, since phones have been out as long as they have, there's, you know, increased risk of depression and anxiety, you know, between or links between those things, between how much time we're on our, our devices and using them, um, poor sleep quality, increased risk of car and, you know, death injuries because of people texting and driving and stuff like that. And while many of us wished or sometimes think like, man, I really need to quit spending so much time on my phone, why don't we? Like, what is it? I want to share um, a quote from you real quick by one of the former vice presidents of user growth at Facebook, and here's what he said. He said, I feel tremendous guilt um, when he was answering a question about exploiting consumer behavior. He said, the short-term dopamine-driven feedback loops that we've created are destroying how society works. He highlights something that most of us know, um, and that's that he said, smartphones and social media platforms are turning us into bona fide addicts. And while that might seem extreme to you or like a little bit dramatic, to be like, okay, am I really going to call myself a smartphone addict? Um, here's why he says that. So platforms like Snapchat, um, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, literally leverage the same neural circuitry that um, are used by slot machines and cocaine to keep you coming back and using their product as much as possible. Why? Because they make more money. The more you click and the more you're on it, the more money it's generating for them. Um, and so it's really interesting to me that they you know, admit to and say, here's the science behind how we get you to our app and we keep you there. And I know you've probably joked about, or we joke about, having like our own Facebook spies or you know, like Google people who you think are listening to you. And it's like, well, actually, they know exactly how to get you to keep coming back and using what they're, they're selling to you. Um, there's a documentary that's on Netflix called The Social Dilemma, and one of the things that was super compelling to me when Brandon and I watched it was that it's not a documentary made by a bunch of Christians who are like, you know, spouting scripture and are telling you that um, cell phones and social media are bad. These are men and women who were very high up on the ladders um, at places like Google and uh, Yahoo and Facebook and, again, all of those different platforms, and they're saying to you, it's their experience, Pinterest, another one, um, and why they left those places. And their whole point, I guess, is that the way that these things are designed again, and because technology blossomed so quickly um, that there weren't really laws in place to protect consumers like you and I, um, that they they were like, we're, this is a moral dilemma for us now because we don't feel like what we're doing is right because it's that specific to you and I and what they think that we'll click on and go to. Um, and again, they talk about how damaging the smartphones and you know, stuff like that can be. And they even talk about how gross it is to them that all of these you know, big tech companies refer to us, the consumers, as users. And they say, you know, in, in no other context would you use the word user about somebody and it be a compliment. But for whatever reason, we are users of Instagram, users on, you know, your username on um, TikTok or whatever it is. But maybe you're like, okay, Haley, I don't, don't struggle with my phone. Like, I've got that on handle, you know, like, that's not a big deal for me. 
Social media is not a big deal for me, but maybe you talk on your phone a lot. Maybe you text a good bit and you call people. Um, and again, in light of talking about things that we don't always address in the church, we have to be careful because you might be one of those people who picks up the phone and says, you know, Martha calls Mary and says, hey, we really need to pray for sister so-and-so. Did you hear what she did? Fill in the blank. And what started as let's pray turns into gossip and slander, which is not okay either. We know that Proverbs, excuse me, is littered with tons of scripture about how um, backbiting and slandering is wrong and uh, not uplifting, and then how James even talks about the tongue being deadly and the tongue um, not being able to be tamed. So maybe, again, maybe you don't struggle, you know, with the social media side, but you struggle with the news toting side or the, the gossiping side. Maybe you're addicted to caffeine. Are you that person who is a little bit grumpy in the morning until you've had your coffee? <laughs> And maybe the person people avoid until you get your Starbucks. Um, or you need it because it's going to make you super productive. You're like, I need to get the caffeine. I got stuff to get done. Um, or you get headaches from not having it. That's me. I love, anybody who knows me knows I'm a North Carolina girl. I love Sundrop. Sundrop is loaded with caffeine. <laughs> and when you don't drink it, it gives you a headache. Um, or maybe you're addicted to work and you might struggle with finding your worth and your identity and what you do rather than who Jesus is and um, who he says you are. Maybe you're addicted to sleeping aids. You have trouble going to sleep at night, and you know, you're like, oh man, I have to have this to go to sleep. Um, I even had a friend whose daddy was addicted to nose spray, which sounds really crazy, but he couldn't go to sleep at night unless he had nose spray. Great Christian guy, I mean, phenomenal, but had trained his body to be dependent on nose spray to get a good night's rest, which is crazy, but he did. Um, nicotine, vaping, maybe things that, you know, you do to deal with the moment, the stresses of what's happened in your life to take the edge off of the day. Or maybe you just do it because everybody at work does it and people at school do it and you don't want to be left out. Gluttony, that's one we don't talk about a ton. Um, maybe you struggle with overeating and overindulging because it's where you find comfort when life gets crazy. And it could just be because you genuinely enjoy good tasting food too. And that would be me. <laughs> well, I wouldn't say I'm a glutton. There are times where there's gluttony evident when I have really good food and I eat until I feel sick. Um, again, how much of your day revolves around planning when you're going to eat and stuff like that. How much of your time is spent picking your next meal and, you know, um, how much of it consumes your thought life. Sugar, especially in North America, we know this, processed foods, we love them. Literally, the list could go on and on with things that could be addictions for us that we don't talk about. Um, and the thing is, none of those things, you know, in and of themselves might be sinful or might not be sinful for you. It's when you elevate those things and you give them high importance and priority in your life, because what you do is you give it power over you. Um, and the question becomes, how important are some of those things to you? Um, how much of your thought life, again, is consumed by those behaviors? And how much of you as a person is defined by those things? In a sense, what these struggles can do is fuel idolatry in our lives. And what we know um, is one of the Ten Commandments is, you know, thou shalt have no other, no other gods before me, even if the God is no spray, which again is so crazy to me. But um, God says to you and I that no activity, no person, no thing should come before him, that he has to have um, supreme residence in your life and who you are um, and he, he says this in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20, Paul that is. He says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. 
And the thing is from that verse that I glean and that I spent a lot of time thinking about was the fact that we do not belong to ourselves if we place faith in Jesus. If you love God today, if you've given um, your heart to him, he says to you, you're not your own anymore because I bought you with my son. Like my son died for you. I bought you at a high price. And so that should, again, impact how you move and how you um, navigate the world, that you don't belong to yourself, that you belong to God. Again, it's really easy to talk about the habits and behaviors and struggles of people who have major addictions that are very obvious, you know, the ones you can't ignore and that don't really seem like major sins, um, but we don't talk about those seemingly small things that can lead to addictive behaviors or patterns of um, behavior and habits. You know, when I was talking to Brandon and thinking about all this and, again, having had my own experience with addicts, I told him, you know, none of them ever, like, or the ones that I know didn't wake up and say, today I'm going to be an alcoholic and just go out, and that's, like, what they did. Or today I'm going to be addicted to drugs, and I'm going to let it ruin my life. That's what I'm doing today. That's not how it happened. I mean, you know this, too, if you have experience with people who struggle with addiction. It's usually those small, seemingly insignificant sins or um, things that separate them from who God created them to be that lead to addictive patterns of behavior that turn into the ugly head of addiction. Um, why do I mention that? It's because it's important for us to know that no, no matter how small or how large the sin is, again, just like James talked about last week, sin is sin and it's separation. And that's what we're about to read um, some about in the Bible in Genesis. Those things are usually... Again, the things that are really easy to hide and conceal and, you know, the stuff you can do when you close the door and, like, literally maybe only you and God know about what you're doing. Um, and, again, you don't need me to tell you what these things are because you know what they are. I know what they are in my life. Um, and why we need to identify these struggles is because not only do they impact you and your relationship with the Lord, but they always impact every person around you. Again, from the smallest sin to the largest sin. Uh, the things that you do in secret behind closed doors that you'd never want anybody to know about will touch every part of your life and even the persons or people that you haven't met yet. If you're not married in here today, you may not know your spouse. If you struggle with an addiction to porn, it will impact that person you haven't met. If you struggle with an addiction to a substance, it will impact that person you haven't met. Maybe you don't struggle but with an addiction, but a silent sin of sometimes looking at porn or sometimes doing this or that, it will impact those people that aren't even in your life yet because it'll be a part of your story. Now, there are two stories in the Bible about um, Abraham and Lot in Genesis and how they struggled with sin. And there's lessons that we can learn from them today. So we're going to start in Genesis 12 and read some um, about Abraham first. This is before God changed his name, so it's going to refer to him as Abram. In Genesis 12, it says this, The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. Um, I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. So in those very first four verses, what we see is Abram being called by God and being given very clear directions on what to do, um, with an incredible promise of blessing and protection, and the very next verse after God's promise says that Abram went, he does what God tells him, and he takes Lot with him. Why is that important? 
Lot is uh, Abram's nephew. So Lot is Abram's family. God just told him to leave his family, to leave his father's household, um, to leave his people. And here is Lot like trailing along for the journey. And when you first read that, you might be like, that's really like, that's not that big of a deal. Um, you know, he's taking his nephew with him. He's literally obeying every other thing God asked him to do. He's uprooting his life. Um, he's going to some foreign land. It might be nice to have somebody he knows once he gets where he's going. Um, kind of like those tiny, really small, seemingly insignificant sins and struggles in our own life, right? Are they really that big of a deal? Is it really going to cause tons of destruction in my life? The short answer is yes, because disobedience in any size is sin. Sin is separation between you and God, which will impact every part of your life. We know this, and again, it's always going to impact others too. Lot being along for this journey um, is going to cause problems for both Abram and Lot in the very next chapter. But before we head there, we're going to finish chapter 12 real quick. So if we keep reading in verse 10, it says this. Now there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to live um, there for a while because the famine was severe. As he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarah, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me and let you live. But say you were my sister so that I will be treated well for your sake and my life will be spared because of you. When Abram came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that Sarah was very, a very beautiful woman. And when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Abram. Excuse me, they praised her to Pharaoh. And she was taken into his palace. He treated Abram well for her sake, and Abram acquired sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, male and female servants and camels. But the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abram's um, wife, Sarah. So Pharaoh summoned Abram. What have you done to me, he said? Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why'd you say she's my sister so that I took her to be my wife? Now then, here's your wife. Take her and go. Then Pharaoh gave orders about Abram to his men, and they sent him on his way with his wife and everything that he had. This particular passage is super important in Abram and Sarah's story because what it's going to do is mark literally the rest of how God's plan is going to unfold in his life. Um, lost my place there. Sorry, friends. Uh, what happened was this. We know he gets there, and he makes a little bit of a blunder for himself. Um, and that's because the first thing that he does that is sin is leaving Canaan. So Canaan is where God had called him to, um, and he leaves to travel to Egypt. Why? It tells us because there was a great famine, okay? He was worried. He wanted to make sure that everybody was fed and nobody died, that he was able to, to take care of the folks that were in his care well. Um, a famine is a, an obvious problem that's super serious, and it wasn't wrong for Abraham to be worried about that. It was right for him to worry about that. What was wrong was thinking that God wasn't going to provide for him where he had called him to. Remember starting out today with the question, what are you looking for? Um, and how those things weren't wrong. It was where you go to have those needs met. That same thing was true for Abram. Had he had stayed in Canaan where he had been called, God would have provided. But instead, he went looking in Egypt. And again, this is going to cause problems. Abram, like most of us, found it easier to trust God in the far-off promises rather than in those right-now needs, the things that are happening to you today that you're walking through. Again, his first mess-up is not trusting God to provide, which leads him to Egypt. And when they arrive, his second major mess-up is telling a half-truth because he thinks it's going to protect him. All right, So he's taking matters into his own hands still, and he's saying, 
Sarah, you're so beautiful, they're going to kill me so they can have you and keep you. So tell them you're my sister so that I'm protected and we're blessed and taken care of while we're here. And they do this. And um, while I say it was a half-truth, is because Sarah was his half-sister. But a half-truth is always a whole lie. And it's going to wreak havoc in his life. It's about to get um, interesting. It doesn't end well for him because... While his plan works and he is kept safe and he's even blessed while he's in Egypt and, you know, Pharaoh gives him all these things or whatever, uh, when he leaves, he's going to take some baggage with him and he's going to take a little bit of Egypt with him too. There's also a moment of shame, you know, where he's called into Pharaoh's courts and Pharaoh rebukes him and is like, why didn't you just tell me the truth from the get-go? And that was a mark also of um, God saying to Abraham, if you'd have trusted me, I would have protected you in that moment too. Even though you had, you know, initially sinned, You could have still told the truth when you got to Egypt, and I would have provided and protected you. And that was a big deal, because Pharaoh didn't believe in the same God that Abraham believed in. So to be rebuked by a pagan pagan, um, Pharaoh then was not, not a good thing at all. His trip would prove to cause many problems for him and Sarah, because we know down the road... Um, While God provided a way out of Egypt for Sarah and Abram, again, they took some of Egypt with them in the form of a slave girl named Hagar. Um, We know that if we keep reading their story, what's going to happen is they're not going to trust God. They're going to take matters into their own hands again, and they're going to come up with this plan basically to for Abraham to um, get Hagar pregnant because Sarah hasn't been able to give him children. And at this point, the promise that God gave to Abraham happened years ago. It's not like he made the promise and then Abraham saw the benefit and saw it all unfold right when he gave it to him. They're years out from that initial promise. Um, And so again, they're taking matters into their own hands and things do not work out well. Um, And it causes problems for Abraham down the road. I wonder sometimes um, if we are similar to them, more similar than we think we are, um, and that we try to take matters into our own hands too and try to solve our own problems ourselves, try to find provision in what we can do and what I can do with my own hands and um, what feels good because I can control it rather than trusting in Jesus and what he wants to do. Um, I think we forget that God is not this harsh, um, you know, hard-fisted father who wants to make your life miserable and make you, you know, not have any fun and miss out on things when he says to do something or not to do it. Um, It's that he is a good father. That's why he says to do things and he says not to do them. His instructions and advice for you and I when it comes to living are because he does literally know what's best. It's because when he says to do something or not to do it, um, it's because he sees what we can't see. His vision is limitless. He sees the entire picture and the things that we only see, you know, in the right now. He sees what's happening past that. Um, And what he wants for us is good. Again, what he wanted for Abraham and their family was good. That's why he tells us and gives us instruction. Now, if we keep reading into the next chapter in Genesis 13, there are two stories kind of simultaneously happening that we're going to talk about quickly. So again, Abraham gets booted out of Egypt. Pharaoh's like, you need to go because of the plagues. And he's headed back to where God had originally called him, which was Canaan. And Lot is traveling with him. Um, And what happens is Abram and Lot and their herdsmen kind of have this feud or whatever because their company, like their entourage is so large that the land can't support both Abraham and Lot and their households. And so Abraham says to Lot, let's not let this conflict come between us. We're family. You know, let's figure this out. And they look out over the valley and he says, you pick a side and then I'll go to whatever side you don't pick. And so he gives Lot the first choice and 
Here's what Lot does. In verse 10, it says, excuse me, Lot looked around and saw that the whole plain of the Jordan toward Zor was well watered, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. So it, it looked good. That's the Bible's way of saying it's attractive. It's beautiful. It's flourishing. Um, and it says this was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan and set out toward the east. The two men parted company. Abram lived in the land of Canaan, while Lot lived among the cities of the plain and pitched his tents near Sodom. Now the people of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. So Lot makes his choice literally based on what he can see with his eyes, what's right in front of, in front of him, you know, what looked attractive. And sin is very much this way too. It always looks really good. Always, right? It's always attractive. Um, no sin that entices you ever shows you the bad part first. It shows you what's good and attractive first. Um, but it never shows you the aftermath, okay? And what we're about to see is the aftermath played out in Lot's life. Um, it doesn't show you the reality. It only shows you, again, what's going to get you and try to keep you there. Lot no doubt thought that he was safe from corruption in Sodom because it's not like he moved to Sodom. It doesn't say he went, you know, into the city and started living. He lived right outside of it, kind of like towing the line and getting as close as he could without actually stinking like it and walking away looking like it. Again, just like sin with us, how often do we do that? We'll get as close as we can without, you know, going too far. But what is too far and where's the line? And I'm going to walk close to it. So again, why do I mention Lot's story to you? Um, it's because of this. In Genesis 13 and 14, there's a clear progression in the compromises that he makes. Again, he doesn't just bust through the city gates ready to party and like to engage in all of the things that were going on in Sodom. He went from looking towards Sodom, literally just looking, in Genesis 13.10, to pitching his tent in Sodom in Genesis 13.12. Again, that's the right outside the gate part. And if we kept on reading today, what we would see in Genesis 14.12 is that he ends up living in Sodom. Um, and he loses everything when Sodom is attacked. In fact, it says in chapter 14 that Lot is actually found sitting inside the gate. And at that period in time, if you were found at that part of the gate, what it signified is that you were a leader in the town. So he was a man of um, influence in Sodom. He didn't just live there. He, you know, uh, engaged and uh, found his, his way in status in Sodom. He had no clue the ride that his sin was about to take him and his family on. And I'm sure you've heard the old and wise saying that sin will always take you further than you want to go. It's going to cost you more than you want to spend, and it's going to keep you longer than you want to stay. And this most certainly happened with Lot. Again, today you may not struggle with any major addiction to something, but maybe you struggle with some sin that doesn't really seem like a big deal in the moment, things that nobody else knows about but you. But remember, Lot's story doesn't start with destruction, and with his life totally wrecked, it starts with those small, insignificant sins and compromises that led to major compromises that impacted his entire family. Today, as we wrap up, I want to finish telling you that second part of the story that I told you was simultaneously happening. Um, and that is about Abraham and the story that we can learn about him on his journey back from Egypt to Canaan, where he was called to. So in chapter 13, verses... Um, 14, here's what it says. The Lord said to Abram after Lot had parted from him, Look around you where you are, to the north and the south, to the east and the west. All the lands that you will see I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth, so that if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring would be counted or could be counted. 
Go walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I am giving it to you. So Abraham went to live near the great trees of Mamre at Hebron, where he pitched his tents, and there he built an altar to the Lord. So again, what can we learn from that? There's a couple of things. Number one, God repeats his promise to Abraham, that original promise that we first hear him telling him in the beginning of chapter 12. He repeats the promise. God's promise has never changed to you and I. Again, Abraham had some mess-ups, slip-ups, some blunders, but God keeps his word to Abram, and he keeps his word to you and I too. And although Abraham, again, had lied and sinned and created a mess for himself, God's promise never changed. And you may be thinking, well, we know what Abraham's promise was. It literally, like, explicitly says what it is. We just read it. But what are his promises to me, and how do I know that he's going to keep them? Uh, Let me encourage you with this today, that every promise that God has for you and me is found in his word. And what he wants for you and I is to pick his word up to read the promises. He wants to meet you there and to tell you, this is what I want for you as my child. Here's how you can find it. Here's how you can get it. Let me be those things for you. Um, open the book up, read it, read what he wants for you. The second thing is this, Um, Abram makes a blunder for himself in Egypt, we covered that already, but his response to the blunder is what we can learn from. So Abram's unbelief took him um, from his place of worship originally, it led him into sin, which caused him to lead other people into sin, but instead of living in the throes of shame and in the throes of, um, you know, just trying to sit in what he had done and torturing himself because he had sinned and messed up, he didn't do that. He got busy doing what God had called him to do. And that was living in the tent, and he builds an altar to worship. His response wasn't to wallow again in the sin. His response was to worship the God who breaks every chain and who frees us from sin. And that is... That's a word. How, how hard, excuse me, or easy is it to, when we do mess up, to want to spend more time sitting in that and just like beating yourself up and, you know, being like, man, I really, I really messed it up this time. When God says, no, what I want from you is to repent and I want you to worship me. And that's exactly what he does. He builds the altar and he starts worshiping. Abraham, who is the father of all nations, the one who's called the friend of God um, in multiple places in the Bible. We know he's arguably one of the most famous men in the Bible and maybe one of the most influential men in history. A man known for his great faith who also struggled with sin and looking to be filled in other places outside of God um, is also found 312 times in 272 verses in the Bible. In Genesis, which covers more than 2,000 years of history and 20 generations a third of its book is about Abraham's life. Again, this man who had goofed up, messed up, done all these things, was rebuked by a pagan king, and that's the place he has in history. Why do I mention that? Because it gives me hope that if a man like Abraham can be called and chosen and used and redeemed, if God can make, make uh, beauty from ashes and make you know great things come from his blunders, why would we believe that he wanted anything else for you and me? When we mess up, when we aren't perfect, why would we think he didn't want exactly what he wanted for Abraham for us? If a perfect God is in the business of taking imperfect people and making much of his name, and he is, again, why would you ever doubt what he wanted to do in your own life? Maybe that isn't very encouraging to you today. Maybe you are a little bit intimidated thinking about trying to follow Abraham's example of faith. After all, he's, he's Father Abraham. He's, you know, kind of a big deal in the Bible. I want to share with you um, some commentary really quickly in closing. 
that says this about Abraham. It says, men and women in the Bible are famous for many different things, but Abram is great for his faith. Moses was the great lawgiver. Joshua was a great general. David, a great king, and Elijah, a great prophet. Most of us know that we could never be great in those things, but we can be great people of faith. We can be friends of God. If you despair in knowing that you don't have Abram's faith, take comfort in knowing you have Abram's God. He can build in you the faith of Abram because he built it in Abram himself. He didn't call Abraham ready to go. He called Abraham while imperfect and perfected his faith as he walked with God. You do have faith. You buy a ticket to a sporting event and show up, having faith that the ticket is good. You fly in an airplane because you have faith in the airline's equipment, mechanics, and pilots. You plan a weekend based on the weather report, and you do this even though sometimes there are ticket scandals, sometimes planes crash, and sometimes the weatherman is wrong, but you still have faith, and God can build the faith you have. If he can start with that, what he wants to do in your life, and if you will surrender and give it to him, is limitless. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this day, Lord. Thank you for, again, each person who's here, Jesus. God, thank you for being a God who is faithful, um, a God who is in the business of redeeming us, Jesus, a Lord who um, doesn't, you know, stow us away to the side when we mess up, but a God who says, I want to meet you where you're at, and I want to make much of my name. God, I pray that you would do that in all of our lives, and ask again, God, that you would Give us power and strength through your spirit, Lord, um, that you would make your heart again in our homes, excuse me, our homes in our hearts. Um, as we continue to trust you, God, I pray that you would help us to be rooted in you, um, that when life gets tough, when temptations are strong, God, that it would be our roots in you, Lord, that keep us anchored. Jesus, give us the power to understand again your love for us, God. Um, help us to experience it. In its fullness, Lord, and I ask that you would fill each person that's here today, God, with your fullness, with the fullness of God, that that's what we would walk in today, um, and that that's what we would glory in, Lord, and that that's what we would put our hope in. In your name we pray. Amen.